You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. ...is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verse 19 through to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 6. If you're using the Church Bible, the passage is on page 971. This was intended to be a short series on the Sound on the Mount. Uh, It's had a gap of about six weeks, I think, so it's becoming a long series on the Sound on the Mount with a big period of silence in the middle that is now about to be broken. So let's read this passage together. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, our intention in this series is to focus on the logic of the Sermon on the Mount more 
than on the individual details of its many verses. And the reason for that is that we are studying it in order to essentially find out how Jesus thinks and how it is that Jesus teaches us to think. I've said before that I think there are some big words in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's important for us to understand the context in which Jesus is teaching. He has proclaimed that the kingdom of God has come, and He has been preaching the power of that kingdom and demonstrating the power, especially in the way in which the kingdom of God turns the world the right way up. The kingdom of God brings people back to normality. What Jesus is creating is a new community, a new humanity, where there is evident uh, restoration to what God meant us to be. This is how the church about which He speaks in chapter 5 becomes a city that is set on a hill that can never be hidden, and the light of the world. This restoration, and He shows it in the way He heals diseases, in the way He gives sight to those who are blind and hearing to those who are deaf, in the way in which those who are lame are able to walk. He's bringing their lives back physically to what those lives were intended to be as an illustration of the fact that He is able to do the bigger thing, which is to bring our lives back to what they were meant to be in the presence of God and living before God. Remember the man who was dropped down through the roof by his four friends and the Pharisees who had pushed their way into the house and were glowering at Jesus, waiting to see what He would do. And He, he said to the man, eh, I'm going to forgive your sins, but I want you to take up your bed and walk. And He asked these observers, which is the easier thing to say? Your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk. Actually, the, the far easier thing to say is, your sins are forgiven. Who knows whether it's true or not? The far more difficult thing to say is, take up your bed and walk, because immediately everybody sees whether you have the power to enable a crippled man to take up his bed and walk. And then Jesus applies a piece of powerful logic. He says, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I can perform what is more difficult to do, although it's easier to say, by doing what is actually easier for me to perform, but impossible for you to do. And so he says, to show that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. And the man takes up his bed, and he walks. And the implication is, if Jesus can do what seems to be the more difficult thing to say, then Jesus can surely do the more difficult thing to accomplish. 
And this is the purpose of these miracles he does. To us, it, they seem impossibly difficult. But because he does what seems to us to be the impossibly difficult, he's giving us little hints that he can actually do what really is impossibly difficult for man to do. That is to restore us to fellowship with God and to transform our lives. And we've seen in chapter 5 and now in chapter 6 that there are two big words that summarize Jesus' teaching. The big word in chapter 5 is fulfillment, how Jesus fulfills everything that the Old Testament longed to see in people's lives. And the big word in chapter 6 is that He does this because He's able to introduce us to the Father. And we have seen, I think, on more than one occasion now that in the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures, there are just a couple of handful of references to God as Father. There are maybe 20 altogether. And there isn't a single one in which an ordinary Old Testament believer actually comes to God and says, oh, heavenly Father. And Jesus is now teaching His disciples that what happens when you enter into the kingdom of God is that for the first time in your life, you're able to know God as your own Father. You're able to trust Him, and your life is transformed by knowing that He is your Father. And this chapter shows us that really in two different ways. In the first half, it shows us in terms of our lives religiously, that when we know Him as our heavenly Father, we are freed from hypocrisy. You remember how He speaks about this in every area of spiritual life, uh, that you no longer need to wear the mask, that you're far less concerned about what others think about you, because you know what God thinks about you. He thinks about you as His son, as His daughter, as His child. And when that's true, more and more, it seems, what other people think about me is incidental. If the Creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, calls me His child, then of what lasting significance is it by what name other people call me? And there is this sense of liberation from falsehood. There is a return to normality. There is this sense that if God is my Father, I can, I can go anywhere, be among any people with my head held high, because something is true of me that I know isn't true of them. And then he turns to, to something else. Um, and these two things really often go together, don't they, in our lives, pretense to be something we're not or not to be something we are. On the one hand, hypocrisy. And in the second half of the chapter, he's focusing his attention on anxiety, on our worry, on our sense of insecurity. And it's interesting to me that when he speaks about this, he, 
he talks in different ways about the, the various things that cause people to be anxious and to worry. And they're astonishingly 21st century. The kind of things he says, now, in the kingdom of God, you do not need to be anxious about these things. The very kinds of things that the advertisers in the world today know we are really anxious about them, about the food we eat, about the clothes we wear, and about how we appear to others. You buy any glossy magazine, any glossy magazine, quality glossy magazine, and run through the carefully crafted advertisements and you will see the same subliminal message again and again and again and again and again. Largely, it's about what you put into yourself or what you put onto yourself in order that you may be, in all kinds of different contexts, secure. How you look, how you appear, I'm pretty sure if the proverbial little green man from Mars visited the planet and spent a few weeks here, read these magazines, watched our lives, looked at the television, and then made his way back to Mars to report to the Grand Martian. And uh, the Grand Martian said to him, well, what, what, what about these people? He would say they are absolutely obsessed with what they put into themselves and how they appear to others. And if the Grand Martian said, well, well, what are they really like? He might say, you know, I think they are a profoundly insecure people. They are so easily captivated by these bright advertisements. They have these strange ideas that it really transforms your life if you go to school wearing Nike instead of wearing Clarks. They are so insecure that a little swoosh apparently makes them feel that they can be more secure with other people. And one of the things I noticed is when I went into the shops, they are so like our temples. And they have on display, in fact, I read in one of their old books, a message about a man called Aaron making a golden calf and then saying to the people, these be your gods, O Israel. And that was what I saw. There were strange little groups of people in old buildings called Christians, but by and large, the people in the world I visited seemed to be so overtaken with anxiety about how they looked and how they appeared and what people thought of them. They spent much of their time in these brightly lit and carefully designed temples where the gods were on display. This God will satisfy you. This God will provide for you. This God will make you cool. And one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he is taking the blinders off the eyes and saying, you will never find relief from anxiety. You will never find deliverance from worry. You will never find lasting security in this way. But when you enter the kingdom of God, 
It's not only your, your desires that are transformed. It's the way you think about these things that is transformed. And that reminds me of another big word Jesus uses in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount about which I've said nothing. Do you remember how in chapter 4 when he comes and he says, the kingdom of God has come? What's the next word? What's the implication? The kingdom of God has come, Jesus says, repent. Now, we often mistakenly hear that as Jesus saying, the kingdom of God has come, start feeling miserable about yourself. Well, of course, there are many reasons to feel miserable about ourselves. That's not what he means. He says the implication of the kingdom of God coming is this, that your fundamental need is for a transformation of your mindset, of the way you think. Your first need is for a change of mind, a transformation of disposition. And that's what he's talking about here. He's, he's spelling out what it means for an individual to repent and for this amazing transformation of mind to take place that then brings a transformation of lifestyle. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. What is the key to the transformation of our lives? It is the renewal of our minds. So, how does he do this? Well, notice two big things in the second half of chapter 6. The first is, as he, as he looks at the, the spiritual sickness of anxiety, the first thing he does is to diagnose its symptoms. He's, he's, he's treating his disciples here as, as a great spiritual physician, and he's saying to them, let me, let me give you a diagnosis of the symptoms of your anxiety, your insecurity. And he lists them, first of all, in verses 19 to 21. He says, of course, if you put your treasure in an insecure place, you're going to be perpetually anxious about it and worried. And he says, that's what you're doing. If you place your treasures on things that are on the earth, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will follow. Then he says, you've gone to the wrong bank. You've, you've, you've gone and placed the treasures of your life in, into hands that can't possibly secure them. You see, the only place in which the treasures of your heart can ultimately be secure is if the treasure of your heart is found in the Lord Himself in heaven. This is a, this is a world in which change and decay and all around we see. There's, there are moths, there's rust, there are thieves that break in and steal. This is how the insurance industry works, I think, with apologies to anyone who's in the insurance industry. The more you have, the more anxious you become, and the more insurance you take out. Why do you do that? Because this is a profoundly insecure world. Yes, it's masked by it's sensible to take out insurance, and doubtless it is sensible to take out insurance, but it's an expression of our insecurity, isn't it? 
And Jesus is saying, why would you place your treasure in insecurities instead of ultimate securities? That's a recipe for anxiety. And having more will not release you from your sense of insecurity. I, I continue to be astonished when I read the interviews in the, in the Saturday newspapers with the, the great and the good and the fabulously wealthy, what wretched lives they actually lead. When you, when you strip away the fact that they've been airbrushed and all the rest of it, they've had miserable marriages, they, they can't get no satisfaction and all their treasure is in the earth and in this world. No wonder they're so insecure. And how amazing it is that, that whatever the British version of Madison Avenue has managed to transform our thinking so that we want to be like them. There's something devilish about that, putting our treasure in the wrong places. And then Jesus uses a very striking illustration, doesn't he, in verses 22 to 23, having an eye that lets in only darkness. He uses this very interesting illustration. He says, now, if your eye is sound, if your eye is sound, that is healthy, then your whole body is full of light. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's saying, if, if, your, vision is, if your vision is good, then every part of your anatomy works in the light. I mean, we are we're strange things, aren't we? Because there is light coming in, we know where to put our hand. We know where to put our feet. We know how to get the food into our mouth. Our whole being functions in the light so long as our eyes are sound. But if our eyes are diseased, says Jesus, then, then that affects everything. The whole body is full of darkness. And then he puts it this way, so, so illuminating, getting underneath the surface, he says, here's the tragedy. If the light that is in you is darkness, then it's doubly dark. And that's the problem. The problem, Jesus is saying, is people are walking in the darkness and they think they're in the light. No wonder everything goes wrong. No wonder nothing seems secure. They think they are living with securities, and, and all of those securities just fragment in their hands. We're, we're awash with it, aren't we? Aye. Our governments are profoundly concerned about it, but they will never actually say so because they know that if they say so, all hell will be loose, let loose, and they will be blamed. Um, think about the, the named person issue that concerns us all. Why on earth would anyone in their semi-right mind want to do something that sounds as though it's come out from 1984? It is because we have a problem that our governments cannot solve, and they know it that people think they are walking in the light, but they're walking in the darkness. And the result is the breakdown of family life, the breakdown of social life. 
but we think we're walking in the light. You see, that's the problem. It wouldn't be such a problem if we were in the dark and we said, we're in the dark, will somebody shine the light? The tragedy is that we are in the dark and we think we're in the light. The non-Christian people you know, they don't think they're walking in the darkness, do they? They think they're walking in the light. They're following the light that they see, but their whole body is full of darkness, and it's not surprising that there are. This is the most anxious age, perhaps in all history. Certainly, if drug prescriptions are anything to go by, but you see, if the problem is not chemical, Whatever good a drug may do, it's never going to cure the problem if the problem is spiritual. And then says Jesus, he says, there's another thing here in verse 24. He says, trying to serve two masters. You try and serve two masters. Uh, you'll either love one or hate the other or hate the one and, and love the other. What's he speaking about here? Um, one of the things he could be speaking about here is that the voice of conscience is never silenced. And when we hear the voice of conscience but go the way of darkness, then we learn to hate the voice of conscience, and the result is that actually we become increasingly insecure. And that's what he says. He says it's he says, it's not rocket science. He's saying, if you, if you walk in the light as I am walking in the light, these things are crystal clear to you. And he's concerned for the disciples because, because that's the world in which they live. And he wants to bring them out of that world into the liberty and joy of conquest over anxiety and worry. And how is he going to do it? Um, some of you, I'm sure, have read the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous. He was a London cardiologist. Uh, he was assistant to the king's physician, Lord Harder, and he became a, a minister of the gospel, a famous preacher. And uh, he said on one occasion that in his medical career, which this will be of interest to those of you who have a medical career. The most important book anyone ever gave him was not some modern version of Gray's Anatomy, but a book on logic. Isn't that interesting? A book on logic that taught him how to think from first principles so that uh, whenever he was, uh, had a consultation with a patient, he would think the issue through from first principles. That's one of the reasons why we're taking this kind of broad brush study of Matthew chapter 6, so, so that we can try and catch a little of Jesus' logic. Because I want you to notice that having given his diagnosis of the symptoms of our anxiety, do you notice what this is followed by in verse 25? The word that opens the next section is the big word in logic. A, therefore, B, 
A, therefore, B. It would be a big word in the logic of a physician, I presume, among whom I would never count myself. Here are the symptoms. Therefore, here is the prescription. Here is the remedy. I once had the slightly unsettling experience of going to a physician about something. It was something quite trivial, and uh, after he had discussed my symptoms, I noticed he was turning around to that big book they have. And I, I got just a little nervous at the thought, is this man looking up the big book under F, Ferguson, symptoms as follows, and then these unpronounceable words about the prescription? And in a sense, that's what he was doing. He was saying, here are the symptoms, therefore, if those are the symptoms, this is the disease, and if this is the disease, therefore, here is the remedy. Now, here's something of huge importance to us all. We need to know what the remedies are. And the reason we need to know what the remedies are for anxiety and worry is because anxiety and worry have very loud voices, don't they? When you experience anxiety and worry, you can hardly hear anything else. And anxiety and worry become giants, and for some of us, they become giants in the middle of the night, and we become little pipsqueaks. And what Jesus is doing here in the verses that follow is saying, if this is the disease, then, he says, here is the prescription, and one of the things the prescription must do is to silence the voice of anxiety. And you notice he says something, in a way, very remarkable. Do you see what he accuses the disciples of? Well, that's what it sounds like. He says, you of little faith. Just exactly the same thing he says when they're in a panic in the boat, in the storm, in the Sea of Galilee. You of little faith. Now, from one point of view, that's hopeless counsel, isn't it? You know, you ever been anxious or worried about something and somebody, some bright Christian, well-meaning, has said, you need to exercise more faith? And you say, thanks very much. That's my problem. Jesus is not speaking to us like some well-meaning Christian who gives us good advice but has no idea how to help us to take that advice. When Jesus says to them, you of little faith, let me put it this way, I think it's clear in the verses that follow that He is saying, you who are not thinking clearly as men and women of faith, that's your problem. You hear anxiety and worry and insecurity, and they speak loudly and you're not depending on the logic that will silence them. And you see, it's that logic, this logic of faith that Jesus now introduces them to when having diagnosed their symptoms, He gives them a prescription for the cure to give them some relief and indeed some remedy. And uh, the prescription is this, dear ones, you need to learn to use gospel 
logic. You need to learn to think out of a center in the gospel in order to silence the voice of insecurity and anxiety. The voice of the gospel logic needs to overcome the voice of the illogic of your anxiety. I was uh, sitting on the runway in uh, Dallas Airport uh, on Wednesday night, I think it was, and uh, I'd seen the bags go in, and then I saw the people come on. And when you're in one of these big planes and it looks heavy and you think of all the stuff that's gone into its tummy and all the slightly overweight people who are sitting there, you, I never cease to think, how on earth does this thing get off the ground? Well, how does it get off the ground? I mean, has the, has the, has the United States government managed to do something so wonderful that round the airport there, the laws of gravity have ceased. Not at all. Well, what happens? What these bright aeronautical engineers have managed to do is to take these big beasts and put into them such energies, such powers, such laws of aerodynamics that they employ that these laws of aerodynamics, while the law of gravity still works, will overcome, and uh, this huge thing will fly into the air as though it was the lightest of birds. It isn't that the law of gravity ceases to function. It is that there are, there are powers produced in this, this metal bird that enable this metal bird, as it were, to transcend the law of gravity. So, it doesn't pull it down automatically to the earth. Now, you see, there are always going to be things that will give us anxiety, always, right to the very end, until not only our treasure is in heaven, but we are in heaven. There are always going to be things that cause us worry, cause us anxiety, that can create insecurity. And so, what the gospel does is it releases more powerful laws into our lives. And you can see that. You can see, I think, in what Jesus says, the kind of relentless logic that He uses that silences anxiety and that enables us, in a sense, to begin to soar in life like birds. And look at what He says. He says, you need to think. When you and I fail as Christians, it's frequently because we've stopped thinking. If you, if you were a pastor of, of, of some experience, you would remember many people who have sat before you having messed up their lives saying to you with their heads in their hands, I don't know what I was thinking. And you want to say to them as gently as possible, the problem was you weren't thinking in gospel ways. So, how am I to think in gospel ways? First of all, verse 25, isn't it obvious? Life is more than food and drink and clothes. But in my world, I have been taught that life is precisely these three things, food and drink and clothes. 
That's what I live for. That's what makes me feel secure. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you're focusing your mind on the accoutrements of life instead of life itself. You're losing life by thinking these are the things that will give you life. And you've got to tell them that. You've got to talk back to the glossy magazine and say, I see right through you. You can never offer me life, but Jesus Christ has offered me life in abundance. And then he says, uh, he says, you not only need to see through, you need to look up. He says, look at, the, look at the birds of the air. He says, your Father provides for them. What on earth possesses you to treat your own life as though you were of less value than the birds? You see what he's doing? He's using logic that he sees in the providences of life, in the way in which God shows His kingly power by providing for the birds. And he said, can you, can you make that deduction? When you lift up your, when you lift up your eyes, when you, when you hear the birds sing, or maybe in Dundee the birds coughing, and say to yourself, God is looking after these birds even although they're coughing. And then he says, uh, he says, just think about, there you are worrying. And you can't add an hour to your life by worrying. And now you've started worrying about the fact that you're worrying. He said, but when you know that God is in control, when, when you know that God has ordained your days for you, that you are absolutely secure in His hands. Then He says these, you leave these things to Him. And then He says, and look at the flowers of the field, the lilies of the field. Lilies, of course, in the, in the ancient Near East are, are multicolored, not just white. He says, look at the beauty of this. He says, they're gone. Are you not more important to the Heavenly Father than the lilies of the field. Do you notice how he begins to inject that in? The heavenly Father, that's the problem. You've forgotten you've a heavenly Father, and you've forgotten to see the whole of life and the world through the eyes of the heavenly Father. You've seen everything detached from the heavenly Father, and actually you've started listening to the dark side says, John, the whole world is in the grip of the evil one, so listen to the voice of the heavenly Father. Look and see what the heavenly Father is doing, and deduce from what He is doing that He will take care of you, that you have no need to be anxious. Your life is in His hands. He knows what He's doing. He has experienced from before the creation of the world. Just think about the intricacies of His providence in your life and how he seems to have God-managed all of history to bring you to where you are. Think of the way in which you became a Christian, and all the little connections that there are way back into history that brought you to that place at that time, to Jesus Christ. If he can do that, don't you think you can trust him? And then comes the kicker. 
He says, you're thinking like a pagan. You are thinking like a pagan because that's the way the pagans think. Actually, in our post-Christian society, it's becoming clearer and clearer that's how the pagans think, isn't it? Um, I said at a conference recently to some young men training for the ministry, they asked me about tattoos. I said, it's, I think it's paganism. They were astonished. I said, well, think about it. If all you've got is your body, then you do things to worship your body. If all you've got is this earth, then this earth becomes your God, and you worship it. And he's saying to his disciples, don't think like pagans. You ever catch yourself doing that? And you realize, Lord, I thought I'd made great advance in my Christian life, and here I am, I'm thinking like a pagan. I'm thinking it really matters that people think I'm cool. I'm thinking it really matters how I dress. It really matters that I have great meals. So easy to get caught up in that. In our church, we were looking for an additional associate minister a number of years ago. There was a candidate. People went to hear him preach, liked him very much. We had a very sharp, high-powered lawyer who was the chairman of the search committee. Do you know what he did? He looked up this man's tweets. I I didn't even know this lawyer knew there were such things as tweets. Do you know what he found? He found that he went through 3,000 of them. And he saw something which he told the committee. He said to me, what do we do? I said, we're the only people in the universe that know these things about this man. This man doesn't know these things about this man. But there were two passions in his life. Neither of them were healthy for a Christian minister. And he was, you see, his mind, he was, he was thinking and talking like a pagan And the sad thing was, he thought it was cool Christian communication. He's not in the gospel ministry any longer. It's what Jesus is concerned about, that we can get so caught up, so, as J.B. Phillips puts Romans 12, so squeezed into the mold of this world that we… It's not just we live like pagans, we think like pagans. And what Jesus is doing is investing himself here in their lives and in our lives and saying, look, life isn't just food and clothes. That's paganism. Life isn't just the body. That's paganism. Look at what your heavenly Father is doing and think out of a life that is centered in the knowledge that he is your heavenly Father and he will take care of you. Now, there's one more thing, and then we're done tonight. It's this. That's only one aspect of Jesus' prescription. The other aspect of Jesus' prescription is what we might call anxiety replacement therapy. And 
That's what verse 33 is all about. That's why it begins with the word but. In contrast to all this but, here is the replacement therapy. Here is the, here is the aerodynamic principle that will, will set you free from the fetters of this world-centered, pagan-style worry and anxiety about your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when you're doing that, by the way, everything else you need will be added to you. Paul says the same thing in a different way. He says, if God didn't spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, if He's done that for us, then we can be sure He'll give us everything we need. And see, what he's saying is this. He's saying, at the end of the day, the only reality that will deliver my mind from an anxiety, a, a, a worry that is focused on the things in life, is that there is a much bigger thing in life than any of these things. And so he says, set your heart on the reign of God in your life. See the reign of God in the world and, and think it through and apply it to your life, but, but underneath all that, you need, to, you need to give yourself to the reign of God in your life. You, you need to give yourself to the King. You need to say, O oh, King Jesus, I, I yield to You. I bow to You. Look, all, these, all these tugs, you know, the things of this world have got a kind of of anti-Jesus superglue attached to them that, that hold us back. And we've, we even have one of the biggest fears is what will happen to me if I give the whole of my life unreservedly to Jesus Christ. Some of you love the fantasies of George MacDonald. One of them, the, is it the golden key where one of the characters gets lost and ends up, I think, in a cave, if I remember, and, and the old man of the earth is sitting there, and uh, the character is wanting to know the, the way to life. The old man of the earth picks up this cover at the bottom of his cave, and he says, it's down there, that's the way. And the character looks down into this hole and looks at the old man of the earth and says, there aren't any stairs. And the old man of the earth says, no, there are no stairs. You have to throw yourself in. And that's what you have to do with Jesus. But when you throw yourself in, you're caught by the hands that govern the entire universe. And for the first time in your life, you know you're secure. So, this is the logic of the gospel. It's very different from the logic of the world, but it's the logic of the gospel that breaks down the logic of the world that leads only to anxiety and profound insecurity. And that logic points us constantly to trust in Jesus Christ, who rules all things for your sake and for your blessing. Heavenly Father, thank You for 
the assurance you give to us in the gospel that you do care for us, for the knowledge that you are our dear Heavenly Father. Our lives are infested by voices that call us to trust in the insecurities of this world as though they were secure. We pray that our eyes may discern the truth and see through the lies, the falsehoods, the superficialities, and that You would help us to throw ourselves into the arms of Jesus Christ and know that whatever, whether in poverty or in wealth, in sickness or in health, we are able to take Him as our dear husband and Savior and know that we will not only be secure in Him, but secure for all eternity. So help us, Lord, we pray with this gospel logic for our Savior's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.